Welcome, Green Future Growers, Progressive Radio Network listeners, and anybody who's new to the show. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer, and let's get growing. Something new, and then something also like, I feel like lately I've had a lot of people on my show that aren't talking about their specific garden. Like I always try to like, when they're talking about some other, like, you know, like that, um, I just put up that Brandy Stupico who talks about like mosquito, like an organic mosquito thing. And like, I like those people are like the veggie vendor guy who talks about helping you sell your produce or finding local produce, like just people that have like auxiliary businesses, but aren't necessarily talking about their garden. But I really like people to talk about. I like to have one episode on Monday that's just specifically about how to be a better organic gardener. And then I also have been talking about you a lot lately, I think, because People are really interested in the resiliency thing. Like the girl I was just talking to, I was telling her about your, that thing that you put on Facebook about those gardeners on the east side that are doing dry irrigation, you know, with no water farming. Because she's in Michigan and they're having right, a really right. hot summer. So I don't know. It could go whatever way you want. I mean, I've been wanting to have you come back on for a long time anyway. Well, in the... I would love to see a couple podcasts on the organic gardener on, you know, the organic gardeners when we start talking about soil health and composting, or not composting, soil health and just the the basic principles of cover crops and how to do soil health, they just turn their lights off and they're like, they're not talking to me because they're doing organic gardening. But we're talking to every farmer, every single farmer, including your household vegetable gardener, but especially your organic gardeners that are that are doing production organics because they're on a fast pace of destroying their soils but don't know it. And so finally on Facebook yesterday or the day before, um, one of my friends, she is a leader in organic gardening. And she made a video on the same topic. She's like, when I started hearing about soil health, I just turned everything off because she didn't feel like they were talking about her in organic gardening. And then when she realized it is, the principles are all the same and it affects her immensely, she made this video about it. And so I've been sharing it to other organic gardeners because they have this mindset that they're 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 above or beyond the soil health movement, which they're not. They're actually some of the ones that are ruining their soils the fastest. <laughs> How are they ruining their soils? What are they doing? Like, why aren't they paying so, attention to the soil health movement? Well, these these are. These are the four principles, or these are the principles for regenerative farming or gardening. Minimum to low disturbance. That's the first one. So that would mean a bore bottom plow, which the farmers used originally and what they were using in the 30s, and chisel plows, and plows with um, wide shovels on them, tillers, rototillers. All of those are major disturbance tools. And so minimum disturbance would mean that we're going to use um, a broad fork or a real shallow device 
this is just going to prop at the top, enter to a soil. That's minimum disturbance. The next rule is keeping the soil covered, and they're talking 24-7, 365, other than the day that you're going to pull this weed mulch away and plant the seed, is that the, the soil should be covered. So when you look down on it, you're either seeing dead organic matter from old plants or mulch or wood chips that you've added as a mulch, or you see live plants that you'd never, ever look down and see bare ground. The next rule or principle, their principles, is um, plant diversity. And so the more plant diversity, and you can think of it as, as companion planting, the more diversity we have in the planting, the more diversity there is in the soil life below the soil. And each plant's doing photosynthesis, and if we can think of ourselves as, as farmers or gardeners, that we're, we're, we are um, farming the solar rays of sunlight that's coming to the earth. That's what we're doing with our plants. And as those plants do photosynthesis, then they're dropping root exudates. They leak them out of their root system and into the soil for the soil food web. And so the soil food web uses that those sugars and carbohydrates live off of, but then they deliver to the plant something the plant needed. And they do this with signals of how um, the types of root exudates they're putting out. Let's say it's a corn plant and it needs nitrogen. And growing next to it's a tomato and the tomato needs calcium, where they're sending different signals to the soil biology. And so the biology brings back those nutrients or is creating them, like um, nitrogen's getting pro created by protozoa eating bacteria or fungi and then pooing it out. And then so the nitrogen is in the soluble form for the plant to use. When it was in the form of the bacteria or the fungi, the plant couldn't use it, even though that's right there and attached to their roots. And right in their rhizosphere, the plant couldn't use it until it went through the stomach of the protozoa and they pooped it out. Kind of like the bird eating a seed and its stomach acid turning that seed so that it could sprout the same way. So then these nutrients then become available to the plant. So the more plants we have in that planting group, the more different species of plants in that planting group, the more sugars there is for the soil life and the more diversity of those nutrients that are cycling around in the soil. And say, okay, they did too good a job and there's too much calcium available to the plants. So the one that was sending the signal, the tomato, well, then oh, the corn, the peas, the beans, whatever, they need some too. Then it's available for them to use. So then it's just like a sharing event taking place. And so the more diversity there is, the healthier everything is. So that's the other rule. The next rule, I keep calling them rules, they're... they're, they're um, so the next one is to keep a living root in the soil as many days out of the year as humanly possible. 
So meaning, if we're going to take out a crop, let's say I've just got done with the, with um, what have I just got done with? Something from the spring, um, spinach or arugula or whatever, and the bed's empty now, right? As soon as it is, I take those plants and I chop them down. I just chop them down and they become part of the leaf litter. Then I put in the next succession of plant. Um, maybe I transplant a tomato into that spot or a pepper into that spot. So there's for the biology in the soil. There's always a living root there, always giving off root exudates to feed them. And so then this exchange just keeps going. And it can literally go year around if we have some perennial plants in the system. This is awesome. This is completely totally. Then there's another thing that happens with the yeah with the root structures. And so it's easy to explain, like a, a carrot is obviously a taproot, right? So that has a singular taproot going down, and it can break up hard pan. No different than we use a tilling radish to do the same thing. It's going to go down, break up the hard pan. The hard pan's created from us walking on the ground or us driving an implement or, you know, tractors in the farm ground. Even the train, the railroad train, as it's going by my house, which is, I don't know, maybe 200 yards from my house, it is actually making the ground bounce. So as that ground is bouncing, it's causing compaction. And so a taproot breaks that compaction layer up and gets down into the softer soil, and then the, the worms and all kinds of stuff will feed off that decaying root and they make channels that now that um, worm will follow that channel, which a taproot looks like it's just the taproot, but it had a long, long, skinny root on the end of that taproot that went several feet down in the ground. Then that worm is able to go down that whole channel without much work and make their burrows. And then next to the plant, next to a, a carrot, Let's say it's a fibrous root system, and so it comes down with, with likely thousands and thousands of hair roots coming down in a mat coming off that plant right next to the carrot. And so each root system, they call that biological tilling, that they're, they're actually softening the soil, amending the soil, and making it better from their root system. So a lot of the carbon that goes in the soil is just the roots only as they decompose and that's the carbon, some of the carbon that's going and getting stored into the soil. Versus just having a field of corn, right? When we have corn, we have one type of root in the soil, that's it. So those are the principles. So then when you think about the principles, you think about, oh, I'm an organic farmer, and I just prepared the seedbed, and I wrote a till that I made sure there was no dead organic matter, you know, because it plugs up the rototiller, and then I wrote a till that, and you wrote a till that as deep as your tines will go, which might go four, five, six inches deep, but at the bottom of that, six inches deep, is now a hard pan that that tiller creates. The roots of actually has to break through that in order to have healthy system of any kind going on. A lot of them can't. So they come down, 
they hit the hard pan and then the root turns on a direct angle and runs across the hard pan because it's still looking for nutrients in the water, but then it can't go through it. So then they're all fighting for the same nutrients in water above the hard pan, the roots are. So what is somebody who's got like a 10 acre farm do if they don't rototill or run a tractor over it? I mean, you can't really go through a 10 acre farm with a broad fork, can you? No, you would use a tractor, but you're going to grow a cover crop. Oh, I love it. But you're going to cut that down or roll it down. A lot of times they roll it down with the roller that just crimps off the plant and kills it and lays it into a flat mat. Then they go in with a no-till drill that has a disc. It's got two little disc cutters on the front of it that opens up a little tiny furrow for the seed to go in. And then it drops the seed in there. Then there's a little roller that goes over the top of that that packs it down so that you have um, seed soil contact. And they're called a no-till drill or no-till planter. Awesome. This is fascinating. I love all of this. Because uh, this is kind of a lot of what like Liz Carlisle's book was about, right? That Lentil Underground was like, if we know these are best practices, why aren't we using them? Um, but there's a lot of education to it. There's these new tools that are coming out, it sounds like. And so... Because uh, yep. I know I've talked to quite a few market farmers, and a lot of them have said my tractor is my favorite tool because they're on big properties. And then the uh, on the flip side, my mom kept telling me when I was in New York, some home gardener is not going to use a cover crop. And I've been trying to explain to her, I'm like, yeah, they are, mom. I was like, you can put a cover crop in a itty bitty tiny bed. These are the new principles yep. that I've been learning about. So. Um, and then it wasn't really till Megan Kane was on the other day telling me she tries to put something in when she pulls something out within 24 hours. Because I know I've been trying to grow these cover crops and do some of this stuff that you've been teaching me here. But I've been letting my soil sit for like, you know, a week between when I dig it up with a broad fork and then I actually get my seeds in the ground. So, but we're, you're saying the aim should be to get it done within 24 hours, like the same, like Megan said, pull it out and put something else in there the same day. Yeah. And there's another thing they call, um, interseeding. So they would interseed, let's say we're growing corn. Um, we could interseed, um, peas or beans or clover in between the rows of corn and they're growing the whole time the corn is growing now we may not be harvesting them if it's clover we're not probably going to harvest it but if it was a bean or a pea we could walk through the corn rows you'd have to be walking on some beans and peas but you would still be able to get some harvest out of it but a lot of the intercroppings the intercrop is just to help that um corn plant with the fixing of the nitrogen and keeping the roots cool. So when you have a live plant on the soil surface or you have a mulch, either way you have a cooler um, soil where it's not getting dried out by the wind, but it's not super cool because the soil biology is so active in there that they, they create some heat so that soil temperature 
might not be majorly difference, but it's going to be a major difference versus your dry, air-exposed soils because those are just getting baked. And that soil life at the, at the top of that barren soil or exposed tilled soil, they're not, if, they're, they, if they are there, they're dormant and they're not doing anything because they have to have moisture and they got to have a certain temperature and not over 100 degrees for them to be able to be doing their thing. And then anytime we have exposed soil to the soil surface, um, to the sun and wind, um, I watched a wind um, demonstration yesterday and at how many miles an hour of the wind is traveling before we're going to have some soil erosion. And they had a white T-shirt up on the end of this table, and then they had a plastic mat across the table, and then they had a pan of topsoil, and then they had a leaf blower that they could um, generate the wind with, and then they measured it with a mile-per-hour reader. And so they said, everybody start watching the T-shirt, right? And so it's already running at two or three mile an hour, and we think that we haven't seen anything yet. But then you look down, and the T-shirt's slowly turning gray or brown, whatever color the soil was. Oh, I get it. So the wind's pushing the dirt up on because you, the, the particles. Right. Yeah. Got it. The particles are so tiny we can't see them. So the white T-shirt they kind of stand out. So on. they're already moving. We just can't see them by the human eye. So if we can't see it, we don't we don't conceive it in our minds that it's happening. <laughs> right. It's already happening. But he did it up to several up to 20 mile an hour. 20 mile an hour. You could literally just see the soil rolling and bumping into itself and then it'd start the next one rolling on top of this little pan of soil at a, at a 20 mile an hour wind which of course here in Montana we the other day we experienced it in eastern Montana they experienced a 90 mile an hour wind that you could you can't even just famine that you're you're just left with rocks after something like that if the soil was exposed now, if the plants are on top of the soil or the mulch is on top of the soil, then we're not having that effect. And this also, like, separate from gardening, also these principles I bet work on, like, riverbanks and things where trees are, like, and mudslides and places, like, where they're having the fires in California, like, where disasters come because the soil is exposed and raw like that. It could help there, too. Just a little off-topic, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, okay, keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt. So no, that's okay. So those are the those are the main principles. Those those five things, and you know they've tried all the principles separate from each other, and they do work to a certain extent. But um, when you put all five of them together, you get incredible responses. Where the guys can turn their soils around from being almost under verge of desertification into healthy soils in three years by using the principles together. Okay, so I guess like somebody maybe is going to ask like, so or maybe you like have to start this process in the spring when there's a little natural moisture or like do you have to like water in the very beginning to get even like a cover crop to grow or like 
Is there like a very step one specifically or? I, I like to start whenever whenever the person can wrap their head around starting. Okay. Right, it's a, it's a mental issue that we're having. It's a psychological problem. And so once we decide we're gonna do this, it doesn't matter what time of year it is because let's say it's fall and you would normally go in and, and pull your tomato plants out and take them to the compost or whatever. I would never, ever pull the root out of the ground. I might, might cut the plant off, but more than likely, I'm going to let it do its natural thing and let it catch snow. And it would slowly break down into the system as long as it wasn't diseased. If it was diseased, then I would take it out, out. But I, I wouldn't disturb anything. So that's the first thing that usually happens is in the fall, you know, I try to catch people in the fall so you, you should maybe leave all of that. <laughs> so once they start recognizing these principles, save them a lot of labor and time. They're like, well, I don't know why we haven't done it this way all along. <laughs> Because it is major reduction reduction in in the actual labor that you're doing. This is awesome. I know my listeners are gonna totally love this. So, okay, so they start in the fall. They like I've never thought about that. Leave the root in there, cut either cut the tomato plant off or just leave it there. So then, if you leave it there, what do you do in the spring? Like that's gonna do you turn it well nature's way is already already decomposing it right so it's starting to decompose we actually have the most decomposing going on right underneath the soil right underneath the snow because that those soil process of decomposing it's already taken place with that moisture with the snow and so it's just already breaking down so come spring you should have some mulch left. We prefer you have some mulch left. But you get a system where you really have a lot of soil um, microbiology going on. They're consuming that and they're pulling that down into the soil. Like a worm can take a, a whole leaf, they roll it up and can pull it down their den three foot deep. Wow. And so a lot of that stuff is just going to disappear. And you get into this, and it, like I got a friend, in, I started her three years ago, so this is her third year of mulching and third year of white Dutch clover in her walkways. And so already this is the middle of the summer, right? She's like, I need to get more mulch. And I'm like, well, we know we're going to have the leaves in the fall, I says, but in the future, you're going to have to start thinking about growing a cover crop so you can harvest the cover crop to put in for the mulch. So let's say it's ryegrass or winter kale. You know, they're going to be green, living, grassy plants all winter. And in certain areas, in you guys' area, you would be able to cut it and then use that as a straw mulch. It's going to be green when you cut it, but then you can just put it where you need it, and it'll turn into what looks like straw. Uh, you know, I was going to ask you a question about the clover before that you had said something. Um, peas, beans, 
Rover may not hurt even an inner sea. I guess I was just thinking maybe that um, the bees like the clover that's growing in between. So it's nice oh, to yeah. have that food for the bean. Like even if you weren't going to, you were saying you may not harvest the beans or the peas. You were just putting them in there to kind of help build the soil up. That the clover would be right. a cool thing uh, because the bees love those flowers. And then you also posted pictures of your friend you're talking about, right? That like they were walking on the clover. It was like a, a walkway right. instead of people walking. So it was like something they could walk between their beds. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's got, got it between all of her beds. And then um, when it gets four inches tall, she mows it late evening because the bees have already left. They have honeybees. So their honeybees have already left and went to the boxes for the night. And so then she mows the walkways and lets the frailing, the leaf litter from the clipping, go into the beds. So that's feeding the plants nitrogen from the clover cutting. And then the plant is stressed from the cutting. And so it releases nitrogen that is created on its roots into the soil when she mows it. So she's getting a double dose of nitrogen every time she mows this, this clover. That's fascinating. Huh. Cool. Uh, okay. Are we back to before where I interrupted you or sorry? <laughs> no, because all of these are all of these are same the same principles. So <laughs> they all tie together. There's just you know, there's there's hundreds if not thousands of ways that it could look. It's no different than every single person's got a little bit different soil or a little different um, microclimate or they have a little bit different temperatures, day or night temperatures, everything's different, right? So when you go to a place that's using regenerative agricultural practices, they all look different because they all have something different to work with. And you have different goals. Right, my goals are going to be different than somebody else's goals. So, my goal may be to not have to do a lot of planting, even. And so, some of these plants I let reseed in place, or I let them produce seed and then I cut that and take it to a new place. So, I have different plants growing that I let go to maturity that other people are like, "Oh, you shouldn't ever let that plant go to maturity," like what? Because it's going to put down seed. Um, lots of things like, um, uh, oh, even your parsley, if you let your parsley go to full seed, it's going to put down hundreds of plants right around the parsley plant. So you would be better off to cut the seed and take it where you want it in the garden instead of have a hundred of them in one place, but then I now I have to transplant. So how do you do that? Can I do that with my oregano? Yeah, oregano is in the um, Bracchus family. You can, but if it's been pollinated by another plant in that family, it's going to cross. So that's why lots of people, especially organic gardeners, doing it for production, because they don't want they don't want to find out what nature did to the seed. They need to have arugula when they want arugula. <laughs> they don't want to do a science experiment. So. So you just kind of have to keep track of your families, of which ones can cross and which ones can't. So the squash family, some squash has been crossed with others, and some they can't within its own family. 
so it's just a whole new thing to start learning, you know, when you start um, going to seed. Um, Robin would be the person to have to talk about those sort of things. Cool. I just saw Robin yesterday. Yesterday? On Wednesday. Uh, so... Well, you have dropped like a zillion golden seeds here today. Is there anything else you want to talk about while we're on the line? Or anything you want to add? Or This is awesome. I think listeners are going to love Well, you know, people keep saying that, um, especially chemical ag- agriculture people, have, have been brainwashed by the chemical industry. The chemical industry has brainwashed them to think we cannot feed the world without these modern techniques that they're using. But we could feed the world if by improving our soils by doing regenerative agriculture. Because every, if everybody started, then they would be growing not only nutritious, well, not only tasty food, it's going to be highly more nutritious. And so they have discovered that the, the soil food web that's bringing all these micronutrients of the plants, that's really the missing link as to why our nutrients have dropped out of the plants so badly, where, like, beef um, has dropped in iron, like, in half or more oh, since the 70s. And that's just because an example. cows are eating almost like hay and grains that are not nutritious enough? Is that why? Right. The plants aren't nutritious enough. That the right. cows it's are not eating, in the plant right? Real. Is that it's how the animals eat? eating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. In the same way with us, like if we say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna eat spinach because we want to have all the vitamins that we get from spinach, but if that spinach plant has been grown with um, phosphate fertilizer, and it's not a uh, it doesn't even have to have any other chemicals around it. It's just had phosphates given to it. So it's gotten all of the NPK needed to live and and do well, look great, and harvest on time, Every does everything right. But it didn't get the micronutrients because the soil food web wasn't in the picture. They're not in the picture because they start disassociating with the plant. The plant has evolved with this association of leaking these exudates into the soil and having this exchange go on. But with the NPK given in the right in the root zone for the plant, the plant's like, I don't need to have mycophysorrhizae associating with me. And I don't need to send all the sugars down to the root system. I just won't send them anymore. Because I've got all the NPK I need. So then the association starts getting broken. And so the microbes are like, well, if you aren't going to feed me, I'm going to go some to another plant that will. And it, more than likely, it's a weed or a grass plant or a tree that's feeding the soil food web on your property because your plants have disassociated. That's crazy. And we're doing this like on a mass <laughs> mass scale all over the United States, growing just these large monocrops, right? Oh yes, yep. yep, yep, definitely. And then that's mostly it's, what it's we huge. feed our animals. 
Yeah. yeah. And, and this, the, the same, same thing is going on on our playgrounds, in our schools, on, on our golf courses, on our football fields, in our lawns throughout America. The same thing's going on. And so we don't have the soil food web in the picture. And so we explain how it's doing the nutrients, but it's, it's part of the water cycle, too, is that these roots need to be deep and and full of rodexidates for the soil food web because they're part of the water cycle. And so when we don't have that soil structure that's glued, there's soil starts getting glued around the roots from these rodexidates and the, the soil food web that makes the glues to glue this all together so that they, they make their own, like, cities around the roots of the plants. And that holds moisture. It holds it like a sponge in the soil. But when our plants are disassociated, that glue isn't there, and then we don't have these sponges there, and we can't hold the water. And so a good way to know if we've got soil health issues is if we have a, a flood in the spring and a drought in the same year, we need soil health because we've destroyed our soils. Which is the case all over now that we're having these huge floods. And now we had a flood. We have, we've had, I don't know how many floods in the last 12 years. And now we went through a major severe drought last year. And now we've got plants starting to drought out right now. So in another month we will have it drought. So we will have floods in the spring and drought by late summer because our soil can't hold this water. It just runs off of it instead of into it. Mike was sending me pictures. It's not that we we need more rain. We need our soil to be able to hold the rain that we get. Uh, it's kind of like a savings. <laughs> I know, and it's crazy. We were watching the news this morning and the fires, and I'm just like, what What do people need to see to wake up? Do we need like, the whole country to be burning at once? Like, isn't enough? Aren't these wildfires enough that people should be, like, completely freaking out and going, what is going on and what can we do? And here you've got the answer right here. There's people studying it. You're, you're explaining in very easy to understand language, what our farmers need to do, what people can do in their backyard, what they can do, you know, I think education, of course, is key. Um, But the other thing was Mike was sending me, when I was just in New York at the beginning of the summer of like, uh, what was it, not Chodo, but um, somewhere on the east side over by Helena, where the town was like, they had to shut the roads off because the floods were so bad on the roads, you couldn't leave, like, I don't know, was it Augusta? I can't remember. Some little town over there where nobody could leave for like eight hours or something because the highway was shut down because the flooding was so bad. You know, just... uh, It's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, Yeah. and then they had um, dust storms in lots of places. Colorado, North Dakota, South Dakota. We probably have them here, but nobody's recording them. (laughs) In the Easter Bateau, there was not people to see it. But, but anyhow, from this, from this exposed soil and the soil aggregate not having the glue in there, right? When the, 
when the soil has the, the glues in there, then they're not as likely to start blowing, to have the wind erosion. Yeah, I totally have seen this in our garden, too, in places where we couldn't afford to water or do things that things aren't growing. And I think we're blessed because we have a lot of clover down in our um, orchard is really helping uh, because we don't have the water. I was just talking to the person I was talking to before this. I was telling her how we're just struggling this summer. Just Last summer, we had both wells going, and it seemed like one was dry almost one was like running dry like we could barely keep the water in the house because the wells and then this summer we just have our one deep well and just trying to share it between mike's mini farm and our garden has been really chopped so these a lot of these principles would help us too because mm-hmm. we're not yeah. implementing anywhere near like us we're implementing a very small fraction of this stuff i mean i know mike mulches and we're starting to learn about the cover crops but um we certainly have lots of bare certain places and things so we're culprits just Mm -hmm. as well like you're talking about right here yeah and there's some key plants that i just love to have in a in a cover or in the garden in general like um facilia it's a it's a german plant and translates into bee friend and the bees just love it and it's a lavender bloom but it has like a bushel basket of roots underneath of it it may not look like much above the soil, but underneath, it's just like the rock star of soils. And so it's just one plant that I make sure I have in the system, and I, I've seeded it. I'm getting ready to take out a bunch of my Kentucky bluegrass lawn. In fact, the dry weather over the last two years has, has taken it out for me. I haven't had to do anything to it, but my to, to prep it to put in native plants. But I'm getting ready to put in the native plant seed. But I just scattered the Cecilia on the ground um, maybe a month or so ago just to have any plant there until I know that it's a better time for me to go ahead and plant these perennial native plants, which I'll do here in the next week or two. I'm just kind of waiting to see what to, if I could get a rain, you know. Do you, uh, wait, first, will you spell that for us? Uh, Cecilia, let's see, it's like, Okay, it's a P-H-A-C-E. So now how I would remember that, it's got ace in the middle. Cecilia. And then, so P-H-A-C-E-L-I-A. Cool. And when you look it up on the web, you're going to be like, wow, that is the coolest plant ever. Well, and we see the bumblebees and the honeybees on it, right, and the sweat bees. But if you get to look at it, there's like these tiny micro bees that you've never, and wasps that you've never seen in your life. And you're like, oh my gosh, there's a whole other world up there. In the same way as a microscope, when I look at the soil food web under the microscope, I can see the big stuff, you know, I can see the nematodes, the protozoas, and I can see bacteria. But their bacteria is getting pretty small, right? And particles of clay, I can see they're really tiny. But in the background, you get to look and you're like, wow, there's stuff moving back there that's micro-tiny that I'm going to need to have twice the um, microscope that I currently own in order to see that world, that there's a whole other world that's lots littler than what we're normally 
looking at because we see the honeybee and the bumblebee. But, yep, there's a bee. Well, if we look closer at some of these plants that the bees just love, like borge is another plant that I make sure I always have in the garden because it scavenges, and all these plants do, but it scavenges a lot of nutrients up into its leaf litter, and then that leaf litter deposits it on top of the soil surface. And I can use it in the compost by chopping it and dropping it, putting it in the compost, or I just chop it and move it where I need the nutrients for other plants and let it compost into the ground by itself. And the bees just love it, and it's full, full of beneficial insects. Cool. Where do you get bored? Do you just buy the seeds, or...? Johnny's Seed Catalog has both these plants. And lots of your um, organic seed suppliers would have both plants. And Borge is edible, and it tastes like cucumber. The kids just love them. We eat the little flower because they look like a little star, and the kids can taste the cucumber. But the whole plant is edible. So in the spring or as a sprout, I use it as a sprout as a great detoxer to put, add into my juices when I make a green juice or whatever. Or just eat it on salad because it, it tastes cucumbery. But it gets these fine hairs on it that in, when it starts maturing and you're like, mm, that's not very appealing. So I usually eat it as a sprout. How do you eat it as a sprout? Like when it just pops up out of the ground or like you make yeah. like sprouts it's like in a water container? Yeah, Okay. Yeah, it sprouts super easy. So I just I just take the sprouts away from the where the original plant was the spring before, because you'll need to thin it because it gets so well pollinated that it's going to have seeds germinate on the ground. And so then I pull the ones I don't want to grow, and then I eat those. I'm gonna get but some you of could that. I'm gonna order a, some today because Mike was just asking me yesterday. He's like, we need some more pollinator plants down by the mini farm. I need something to bring so I get more flowers on my plants and get more bees down there and stuff. And I was saying, like I was showing him the other day that we have lots of yarrow growing around the outside, but I wanted to plant some lavender down there. And he was like, no, we're not putting any perennials in the mini farm. You can plant them around the outside. But, uh, and like when I was at the Brooklyn Grange in New York, my mom was just fascinated by the fact that they had around everything of the whole farm there were all these herbs growing and pollinator flowers like cosmos and just all sorts of different um they had lavender too i think and they had sunflowers mixed in like it was so cool because there'd be like a sunflower you know it was like this wild kind of mix of things like there'd be two sunflowers mm -hmm. and then five feet and then one sunflower and then a few feet and like like i don't know it just it was interesting the way they had these things around the edge of all the rows of lettuce and different things they had growing eggplants and kales and things yeah so cool so borage and oh, what did you call that basilia basilia what about do you want to talk about sunflowers because i know like when we went to that i went to that how to have a children's gardener like the thing for educators you did you talked a lot about mm -hmm. sunflowers um, because they bring in pollinate, they bring in beneficials, right? That 
I want to say, did they eat the ants? Right. right. I don't know. And I was looking at mine yesterday that had the ants climbing all over them. You said something about the ants. Right. Yeah, the ants are part of that cycle of life there with the sunflowers. But the sunflowers are really cool, and they can really grow well here because they're native to North America. So native North Americans called Max Million, and it's a short um, branching sunflower. Birds just love it, and the pollinators love it too. But so any sunflower will grow well in Montana soils, though. So when you plant a sunflower in a garden, especially, or a farm, if I had a farm, I would have a pollinator borders, or I'd have pollinator strips. And I would use branching, branching sunflowers. And so they not only just have your one single head, right? They have, some of them can have 20, 30 or more blooms on one plant. And a sunflower, when you look at it, you think, well, there's a sunflower. You think there's one flower. There's actually, for every single seed in that sunflower is a flowerette. And it needs to be pollinated. And so it is pollinated by flies, bees, wasps, all kinds of stuff come to a sunflower that are beneficial, that are now, now they're in the garden, so they're like, oh, I might as well pollinate this this goofy-looking tomato or, or this cucumber or whatever because they're not all that attractive to the pollinators. And so once they're already there, they're like, well, I might as well do this. I'm here, you know. Oh, so that's how the pollinating part works. But then the uh, um, ants, black ants, herd aphids, and they like to herd them in the sunflowers because they can really, really control the aphids in the sunflowers. And they want to control them because they're they're gonna um, as the sun as the aphids sucking the plant leaf juices, it poos out a sugary sap, and the ants eat it. It's just like ants are on a pure sugar high in an aphid colony, <laughs> so they're eating that sap. And how you can tell if you've got the aphids in the in any plant is you look underneath where they're at, and there you see these little sparkly droplets all over the plant leaf, and that's the sugars from the from their poo. Oh, okay, cool. So then, once those aphids are concentrated, right, then they they send off these signals when they start having a a colony build up in numbers, then there's these signals come off the aphids to these black wasps, lady beetles, lacewings, things that predatize on them. And then they start coming in to start controlling the numbers of the aphids. The black wasp is actually laying its embryo inside the aphid. And then that embryo lives out its life cycle inside the aphid, so it kills it. So each female wasp that are micro, they're like tinier than a mosquito, will kill 200 aphids. And so you can actually eradicate aphid explosion with these black wasps. But they don't come in for just a few you know, when you, if you only have aphids and you only got a handful and you go and spray them or you put soap on them or whatever, then the numbers don't get high enough to support the beneficial population. So you almost got to ignore the aphids for a while so the population will get high enough for the rest of the soil 
or not soil, but the rest of the life cycle of these other insects to start taking place. What about, like, I've heard like, a lot of people, like, bring in ladybugs to get rid of the aphids. Is this a better, like, um... Yeah, lady beetles will eat the aphids, right? And the ants will attack the lady beetle to try to keep them out of their colony. But if you don't bring them in, uh, Mother Nature's going to bring them in. She's going to bring in this whole web of life just because you have the aphid colony. And if we didn't have the sunflower, then that aphid colony is going to be on your spinach and and all kinds of other plants, your peas, that you don't want them on. So you, by giving them a plant that's big and, and an aphid doesn't affect a sunflower. A sunflower's got so many sugars moving through its system when it's doing photosynthesis that it just laughs at them. It's not hurting that sunflower, but it's going to hurt your spinach and your peas. Yeah, and you are and not going to like washing them off with them kale. either. And your kale. Yep, they love kale when it's young especially. <laughs> so by having the sunflowers and you walk away, you gotta, you got to ignore the first wave of them. When you got a few of them, you got to ignore them. Because if you don't, then you've you've broken the cycle of life. And will this just come happen just by growing sunflowers? And then my other question is like, my sunflowers are taking forever to bloom. You know, I planted my sunflowers April twenty second, and I feel like the ones mm-hmm. I planted after that are almost even bigger, or certainly have caught up to them. The ones I planted like at the beginning of June, like what about that part? Yeah, I like to watch the native plants. So when the native sunflowers sprout, that's the time to plant sunflowers. And so a lot of it has to do with the soil temperatures. And so I just kind of watch the native plants. And then they tell me when it's time to do what. Cool. All right. Well, oh my gosh, you've shared so much awesome stuff with us. (laughs) Anything else you want to... Oh, this was something I was thinking when you were talking in the beginning. Like, I'm curious, like, if people are interested in getting into, like, market farming or building a mini farm or even just growing food for themselves, like, is it less expensive to start if you don't need a tractor when you get one of these no-till machine things? Like, is that going to bring down a barrier for people who are interested? Yep, you don't even need them. And so I've had several people sell their tillers that I've got started on these gardens. And I'm like, you don't need it. So they're like, why am I still selling it? Some, some of them's husbands just bought the tiller. And then they turn around and learn these practices and start to practice. And they're like, sell the tiller. And the husband's like, what? I just bought the tiller. <laughs> it's like, you don't need the tiller. Well, so I one totally of the simple ways to start is, with, is just with cardboard and just put down a piece of cardboard, put some cow manure or compost, a bucket of it on top of the cardboard, and you put a potato in it and then cover it with leaves or straw or any mulch you can cover it with and go away. And when you come back, you're going to be able to, in the fall, you're going to harvest potatoes and then that spot is ready for something else next spring. 
but you won't have the weeds there. You won't have the grass there. That spot's ready for the next generation of plants. And potatoes are highly mycorrhizal. We haven't even got into talking about mycorrhizae, but it is it is the best thing going in the soil food web because it, it connects all these plants together and it, it provides 20% of the water the plant needs just because of the fungi association. And plus it's a highway of communications. So outside of the fungi circle, the plants may be saying, oh my gosh, I think it's getting dry. They send signals through the mycophysa rhizae to all the plants in the whole colony that you better start storing water and not wasting it because it's getting dry out. All because of the association of mycorrhizae. Okay, hold on. I got to back up a sec. Okay, so I'm going to build a brand new garden bed where I have lawn right mm-hmm. now. So before I put the cardboard down, I plant a potato in like... Dig nope, up, you put, put the potato down first. On top of the grass? The, the, cardboard, the cardboard? The cardboard goes on top of the grass. Yep. Wait, where does the potato go? On top of the, inside the, the cow manure or the compost. On top of the cardboard? Yep, on top of the cardboard. Oh, okay, that's what I misunderstood. Now, in windy places, you may have to use some rocks or sandbag to hold the cardboard down. Okay. Right? But then that plant, that potato, once it gets growing inside that cow manure compost, is going to... Um, send its root systems down through that cardboard. Got it. And it's going, to, it's going to go down into the soil, too. And then that's where all these associations are going to take place is in the soil. Because those roots and the glues that I was talking about earlier all go down through that cardboard and anchor the plant in the soil. This is awesome. But the mulch holds you know, holds everything there so you're you're not having the water um, and you're not losing your mulch. It's going to keep it moist and cooler, keep weeds down. You won't have any weeds because the weeds have to be able to have sunlight to germinate. So that's why this mulching works, is that they can't get any sunlight to even germinate. And then every time you till or disturb the soil, you're pulling up a new seed bank of annual weed seeds that Mother Nature put down in the soil. She's put it down for millions of years, that soil, that seed bank, to protect that soil because she will not tolerate open, barren ground. She does not want it disturbed. She wants plants growing on it. So that seed is in the soil. And so every time you till it, you've exposed it to the sun and the heat, and you get weeds. You've got to be able to break that cycle of how not to get those weeds. But the weeds also come with an association um, between fungi and bacterial ratios. Because when we have annual weeds, we only got bacteria in our soils, and we don't have any of those other soil food web that's taken place. 
once we do have a balanced soil food web, weeds don't grow because they love the bacteria. But our other plants love the fungi-bacteria combination, and so they're what grows. And so then you're not even um, getting weeds to be part of the, the cycle. Okay, so I have two questions. Um, I'm not sure which one to ask first. I'll, I'll go with the spotted knapweed one. So, like, could this, like, get rid of noxious weeds that way, too? Or is it because, like, noxious weeds tend to, like, go around huge meadows and fields and places? But I'm thinking, like, we have a place where we have spotted knapweed just outside my window where I have a tough time because we can't really water it. I feel like that's why the knapweed grows the most. Uh, in this one really dry spot here. Like, well, do you stuff like that? Yeah, na- for things like that? Noxious weeds is a whole other ball game because they come from another country. Mm-hmm. And they come from different soil food web than our food web. They come from a different association of beneficial insects. And so they're from a different continent. <laughs> so we've we've taken it from one continent to a new continent without its partners. And so it it is a huge, huge problem because now we needed to brought in all these partners that didn't come. These partners would have kept it in check and wouldn't have made it into a big problem where it could have been a beneficial plant in another country because most of those um, noxious weeds have huge deep root systems and so they're pulling up a lot of nutrients in their um, roots and their leaf litter and stuff and so uh, some organic more permaculture type thinking people are now starting to cut that noxious weed off before it has before it blooms so right before it blooms, because it's already put all of its energy into making the blooms, because its goal is to reproduce. And so you cut it off right before that happens, and then you just chop it up in place. And so then you're leaving all those nutrients that it gathered up into its um, system on the ground. And then when it regrows, you do it again. And you just keep doing that. And so you're mining, you're letting that plant mine these micronutrients out of the soil and bring them to the um, top of the soil for your other plants to use. Does that work with dandelions? Do you never... You know all the people in, like, the cities that are also worried about, oh, my gosh, I've got to have my dandelion-free, you know, lawn. What's that? Like, people, like, that live in cities and, like, that have homeowners associations and things that say, oh, you can't have a dandelion in your lawn because it works for those, too. That's right. Mean. And dandelions are, are doing, they're breaking up compaction, and they're they're providing calcium to the system. And so they're doing a job. If they would do the job for them, they'd relieve the compaction, and they got their... Um, magnesium calcium ratio right in the ground with their chemistry then they wouldn't have dandelions but the dandelions is just the messenger it's not the problem it's just the symptom of the problem and so they're just telling the person 
you've got a problem, you need to fix the compaction and you get your your calcium right in your soil. But they don't. They go out and get the 2,4-D and they spray the weed or the weed be gone or the weed and feed. All of them have 2,4-D in them. All of that chemical is part of Agent Orange from Vietnam. It's a defoliant and it's highly, highly toxic to people. But we've had it in our in our use for so long we're comfortable with it. And people have lost any fear of it. People don't even read the label anymore. They just are using it. And it's it's one of the things that is very, very devastating to our health and what's going on with children's health right now. And so it's one plant or one thing, one one practice that we need to get out of society and get it out of our lawns and our football fields and our golf courses it needs to go. And so in order for it to go, we need to have the knowledge of how do we deal with the dandelion. <laughs> it can be so simple. We're going to have to have some education. Awesome. Paul Tukey is a, is a great resource, and he's got a great book out. Paul Tukey, it's T-U-K-E-Y. He's actually put in a, a native or a natural lawn in Washington, D.C. And he's one of the um, people that helped get the the band on 24 d products um, for lawn use and stuff for recreational use, I think they call it, in Canada and several cities back east. And he's got a lot of uh, parks that have went into natural um, natural growing instead of using these chemicals. I've heard of him. He's got he's got some really good videos too. Cool. People don't have time to read the book, but yeah, the knowledge is out there. I feel like reading a book's easier than watching a video. I never have time to watch videos. I would rather read a book. Yeah, yeah. It seems like people are either one or the other. I'm a little bit of both. So. Uh, Okay, so quickly, wait before we move on. I just have like. So this is my question, like, our fruit trees down in our orchard, like, the grass has grown in. When Mike first planted them, he had, like, the nice big round circle around them. But how do I get rid of that grass that's up by the roots? Like, I was thinking, could I put that compost, could I put that cardboard with compost on top of it, or is that going to kill Well, how old is roots? how old is your trees? We planted the orchard, I want to say... I sold my house in 2011, like 2010, 2011, so like seven years old now, I guess. Okay, well, if you could dig up your tree, you're not going to, but you could dig it up. Can you imagine how big the root system is on it? I just want to get rid of the roots from the quack grass that's grown in. How do I get rid of that? Well, quack grass grass needs to have competition. Okay. It has to have competition, and it can't handle it when it has competition. So you need to get other plants growing, and then it won't grow. So like the clover? So the clovers, um, blue grandma is a real short native grass that has huge, huge root system under it, deep, where they go five, six foot deep. It's a little tiny plant above the ground. You're like, that's a little tiny plant. 
well, you would you'd have to get a backhoe to mine it out of the ground. And so you need to plant that. And there's I have a mix put together. I don't have the mix all the stuff that's in the mix right off the top of my tongue, but that's what I would put in the underneath of our orchard. I'm putting it into lawns because they're they're a they're a low mow lawn where if you don't want to mow you probably don't have to mow but you for sure will not have to water after you establish it you'll water to establish it but after that you're not going to need to water because it's the same plants that are out on the prairie they've got huge deep root systems they're used to our heat they're used to our dry weather they're used to our cold they're used to everything that happens here and that's what we need to be planning Man, this is, I'm going to have to find out about that for you because I've had more people ask me about what do I do for my lawn this summer than ever before. And especially a lot of people on the east side, but also just in general, yep. a lot of my listeners have. But Yep. They're, they're, their lawns are droughting out. Yeah. That They're not plants for this environment. And so they are just, unless they're watering and watering almost daily, their plants dry, dying because of our conditions and their lack of soil health. So I would be putting these native plants in there. Yarrow is, is a one that I, I like having in lawns. It may mat, a ferny mat, if you're going to mow it. And it's great for the beneficials. It's a highly medicinal plant that um, it's native. To Montana, yeah, we have. I put it in the over. in the mix. Cool. And then we have a lot of mowing, but the mowing I feel like is growing more like where we've already disturbed the earth once. So I wasn't sure is that actually a native plant or is that just something that's coming back because like like any place Mike's dug his backhoe, like we were just looking down where he started to dig a yep. root cellar once, and where the dirt's been piled, yep. it's covered in mowing. Right. Mullen is a pioneer plant. That means it comes first, and it's bringing up nutrients. It has these huge leaves, right? So it's making a lot of organic matter at the soil surface quickly. So it's trying to make your mulch for you. And so it's it's amending the soil for the next generation of plants to live there. But when people go and cut it off, it's a biannual. So they try to cut it off or whatever, then it, it's not able to, to do what it was trying to do. It didn't get to do its job because we intervened. And so if you just leave it alone, it will kind of make a colony because it is biannual and it's got these micro seeds and it's got millions of them. <laughs> and so if you're going to try to let it just do its job, but you'd want to cut the flower stalk off of it, um, before the bees are done with it, because the bee it goes up the flower stalk, and so the bees are up at the top. So you need to cut it off because it's making mature seed further down that stalk. But you cut it off, and then they'll put up these secondary flower blooms for the bees, and then you can cut those off, and it'll try to send up more flowers. But that it will. Those uh, leaves are, um, the Native Americans use the plant for lots of different purposes, one of which was um, they make a tea out of it and helps relieve colds and congestion. And so I grow it for um, my natural path, and 
I trade services with her for my comfrey and my mullein. And so I'm just constantly drying it. My rack is full of you know, both plants right now, and I've got mullein outside getting ready to get cut off the stock to come in to get dried for her. So lots of things we get in is a weed. I always thought mullein used the root, used the leaves, huh? We use the leaves to make a tea. Okay. It's got a huge root on it, so it's improving the soil under the ground, too. Just try to pull one out. You may break it off, but you're not going to get the root system out. <laughs> That's one way you can tell if you get a good soil food web, too, is a, you pull a plant, especially if it's a mycorrhizal-associated plant, which is all the plants except for um, your Brachis family, your mustards, kale, broccoli, those guys don't associate with mycorrhizae, but most all plants do. And so any other plant you go pull up, and when you pull it up, if the root comes out clean and there's no soil attached to it and there isn't a lot of hair roots on the root, then you don't have a very good association of soil food web in your soils. If it comes up and it looks like there's all this wad of soil attached to every hair root on the root, and they look like Rastafarian dreadlocks, you've got great soil food web. And so your soils are in really good shape. You can grow most anything in that soil. So it's very simple. You don't need a microscope. You just pull up a few roots, and you can find out what you got going on. Awesome. You have shared so much information this morning, Patty. It's almost enough, I think, to break into two episodes. I don't know how long we've been talking, but it feels like it's been a ton I know. <laughs> of information. Uh, well, I don't know. Should we, anything else you want to say that we've forgotten or that was, like, you feel was important? Or do you want to say I'll talk to you another Well, we can, we can go ahead and close this. Okay. And, um. I would I would close by saying every single person on the planet can do something positive towards soil health. So whether if I'm a gardener and I have one pot and it's a house plant, I would mulch it. <laughs> I would probably put a second house plant with it and start doing the practices. But you can do it all the way up to your biggest mega farms. They got mega farms that got over 140,000 acres in them. You can do it. It doesn't matter where you're growing. You just have to use those principles. And if you're not growing anything, you don't have any soil, you don't even have a pot to grow a plant in, you can buy food that has been grown with these practices by asking your grocer. Ask them for organic food. Ask them for people that are growing sustainably or with regenerative agricultural practices. Once we start asking, they're going to pay attention because really everybody in business for years and still are, are trying to figure out what does the consumer want. Right? They have millions of surveys. They spend lots of money. They hire lots of teams to figure out what the consumer want. Well, you know what? If we just tell them, they could stop spending that money, and we would start getting what we need as humans on this planet to eat, which is healthy, nutritious, 
food that's going to correct our health problems. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Oh, you're more than welcome, Jackie, and I can hardly wait to see your orchard. Hey, listeners, this is actually me, Jackie Marie Beyer, on just my headphones, so I hope the sound is okay, but I have been editing Patty's amazing episode for two to three days now. My computer is on the fritz. More, mostly it's just my plug-in, so I never know. Every time I take my computer out, I wonder, is this going to be the last time until I order a new charger? Or I find, it seems like I should have one for my old MacBook. Um, anyway, so today, while I was doing this episode, I was looking for pictures of the orchard, because Patty and I were talking, talk about the orchard, and I pulled out my old journal, which I just found the other day, from 2011, and in like an instant, I was able to find the date. After searching through my photos, which I have thousands and thousands of photos and videos of our garden from back 2005 at least are on the computer because I was reaching out to talk to listeners and I would love to talk to any listeners if somebody wanted to talk to me I would love to get your feedback on some content that I've been creating this summer and that we've created this year Uh, a few people have been reaching out to me and said they're interested in fall gardening so uh, and the other thing is Mike had a friend whose parents wanted to see our garden and I was like he said, do I send them to the website? And I was like, actually, our website does not really have. I did recently do a couple of blog posts about going down memory lane. But really, if you, if you are interested, do you know where the most pictures are? It's so funny. On Instagram. So if you want to see us, follow the Organic Gardener podcast on Instagram. But anyway, so I've just like, so I got the journal out and was easily able to see. 2012 is when we planted the orchard. And I thought, this journal is so valuable. This is why I made the 2018 Spring Garden Journal, which, you know, did not come out. I did, like, what, how many renditions? Like, now I would encourage you to go get a journal. And what I would say is just fill it in day by day, whatever day. Like, if you only write in your journal once a week, since you can completely fill it in, there's no specific calendar. Like, if you're writing on a Tuesday, check off the box Tuesday and put the date you know, and just, um, fill it in that way. I don't know. It's going to be a work in progress. I love journals though. I love, I write in my regular like diary journal every single morning. That's how I figure things out. I write, this is what I did yesterday. This is what I think I should do now. These are the new inputs that I've gotten and things change. And that's the way journals work for me. I'm not as much of a planner as I am a reflector. That's what I am. A reflector. So anyway, I'm rambling on here, but I have a couple of things to say. One, I could definitely use some help with the Organic Gardener podcast. Like there is a Patreon page and if you could go there and help donate, Daisy has said I should tell people, ask people for help. Like I really, as I'm trying to launch this new authentic learner business, I could use some help with the Organic Gardener podcast. Like the $100 a month it cost me to keep the website up and keep everything up. So while I'm trying to create a product that will maybe pay for the podcast, a course or a book or a magazine or something that will bring in some dollars, uh, I could sure use some help paying for it. And I guess Patreon maybe would be the place to go. 
So if you could do that. Or as I like, this is what I don't understand. My brother and DC are both like, ha ask people to go to Patreon, donate. But if you just click on any link that goes to Amazon, if you're going to Amazon anyway, anything you buy within 24 hours would help us. So it's not a lot. It's like pennies on the dollar, you know, but it can, it could, you know, it could help with just, you know, it costs me like a hundred dollars a month at least to produce like without my time just for the tech and everything so that would be huge i have some great guests coming i hope you've been enjoying some of the guests that i've been talking to this summer and so i would just really appreciate if you have any help and then uh you know i don't know i post a lot of stuff on facebook but i feel like facebook won't share my stuff until like somebody mentioned the other day like what i need is a thousand likes so I've never asked anybody to like anything, but maybe if you want to like something on Facebook, that would be another way to help us like the actual Organic Gardener Facebook page. I guess that makes a difference. Um, so there's just some things that I thought I would share with you while I have my microphone out. I hope you love this episode with Patty. I'm sorry about the sound quality. I don't have any sound quality troubles, and I can just imagine what this is going to be like, me talking into my headphones. Um, but I hope you're having a great summer. It's so great to see those of you who are in the Facebook group. I hope you enjoyed like my interviews with Kara and, um, Angel Garbarino. The, I just love when guest listeners come on and then they talk like Kara, like she just remembered so many great episodes and I hope you're enjoying those episodes and just thanks always for helping change our planet. I love my podcast and I'm so grateful to be the host and share your stories and everything we're learning. And, um, I've done so much, like I love my little broad fort or what is it again? Um, buckwheat project. If you haven't been following that on Facebook, I actually planted a cover crop of buckwheat that grew. My sunflowers finally bloomed. I, I forget that people aren't on Facebook, which I should, because I get like 25 views. So I know that like people aren't there. <laughs> <laughs> or that's what I'm saying. Like maybe Facebook doesn't share it because I don't have a thousand likes on the Facebook page. So, um, I try to post and then somebody else asked me, Oh yeah, I was starting that. Somebody, I talked to a listener who said, we want to see more pictures of your garden. You talk about it all the time, but you're not pictures. Like that's kind of also when I realized, do I not post pictures? So I should, I take a million of them in videos. I wish I could do Facebook lives in the garden. That would make it easier. But the as soon as I walk out of the house, pretty much I lose it. So if you want to win a spring garden journal, that was the thing I did a Facebook live today, which was so fun to have people actually click while I was live. A Facebook, if you want to win a spring garden journal and you live in the United States, I still have like five of them. So I know they're outdated, but they would still work. I think you could write about what you did. I still think one of these days I'll go through my photos and fill in the 2017 one. And that would almost make like a book in its own. Um, cause then I would have like this, like I could like by describing the pictures or something or what happened, like I would have like actual dates and like, I think if you go into info on somewhere, it will tell you what the temperature was. I don't know how all that works. Anyway, um, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you could donate to Patreon, that would be amazing. Or even just shop on Amazon through my link. Like s some people must shop at Amazon. I don't know. Maybe not. Thanks. Have a great day.